What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. And welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Monica Parker. She's an author, a speaker, and the founder of global human analytics and change consultancy, Hatch. But she's so much more than that. Her career has had highlights like being an opera singer and a museum exhibition designer. And get this, a homicide investigator defending death row inmates for Florida's Department of Justice. She's got a brand new book out, and and you're probably like, wait, what's this book going to be about? Well, it's called The Power of Wonder, the extraordinary emotion that will change the way you live, learn, and lead. And in this conversation, we talk about the surprising benefits of wonder, what that is, how it benefits us. She pulls from psychology, neuroscience, philosophy, literature, business. And essentially, this book is a wonder guidebook. It's got stories and ideas and theories, knowledge, wisdom, inspiration even. And ultimately, it's about that wonder is not just a feeling. It's a part of our emotional DNA. It's a catalyst for building social and emotional skills that we need to be more open and more curious and more compassionate and ultimately more human. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation on this topic of wonder. It is one that we desperately need after the last few years, for sure. So I'll get out of the way and just say, enjoy this conversation with Monica Parker. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Monica Parker. Monica, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Thanks for having me. If I were to go through and talk through somebody's bio, I don't know that I've ever had anybody as wide-ranging of a different... (laughs) They say these days it's not just one thing. You have a portfolio of positions over the course of a career, but you've got things that are so different from one thing to the next that it's just... I can't help but wonder, (laughs) you know, how did you go from thing to thing to thing like this? I mean, not only are you an author and a speaker... You have founded the Global Human Analytics and Change Consultancy, which is a mouthful, Hatch, but also have been an opera singer, a museum exhibition designer, and then this one's the one that I get tripped up on the most, a homicide investigator defending death row inmates for the Florida Department of Justice. How did you go from thing to thing like this? Well... I think maybe my ADD is a little bit of a superpower. You know, I'm interested in a lot of different things, and um, I've just had the ability to find opportunities in my life. And when I engage in something, I give my whole heart to it. And it's not that I'm a dilettante. I take each one of these roles that I have very seriously, but I feel like I invest myself and I love learning. I mean, that's really the heart of it is that I am a nerd and I love learning. And so every time I change jobs and careers, really, it was an opportunity to just learn something else. And I think it was only when I found consulting that I realized that I didn't have to keep 
moving jobs. Instead, I just had different clients. And that was the way for me to continue to constantly be learning and developing my knowledge about the world. Well, and it seems that those different, you know, disparate career positions were always you basically living in wonder, like you talk about in the book, which I guess I should mention, your brand new book is called The Power of Wonder, The Extraordinary Emotion That Will Change the Way You Live, Learn, and Lead. I'm curious, through your career path and all these different pit stops or or different, you know, pivots, I guess is a better way to put it, in curiosity and in wonder, when across that spectrum did you decide, you know what, there's something here, I need to share this? What was the discovery? What was the insight that led to the book? Well, really, most of my career has a theme of helping people through change, big existential change. So whether it was working with men and women on Florida's death row or working with the parents of children who had disabilities or even in the corporate sphere, working with organizations as they're losing, you know, laying off huge groups of people. It's helping individuals through big existential change. And so I wanted to write a book about change and actually about change management, which in retrospect would have been really, really boring. But what I, as I started to research what made people more resilient, I recognized that there was a red line through my life, which is that I found that people who held their world with a great deal of wonder were more buoyant. They were better able to deal with what the world threw at them. And I could just see that there were just some people who were better able to manage those changes. And what I found was really that it's wonder. This is one of these key elements that helps us metabolize change. And so when I I sort of discovered that, I wanted to share that knowledge with other people. Now, it it seems to me that some people are going to take issue with calling wonder an emotion, as the subtitle alludes to it, it, the extraordinary emotion. But if they don't know, and they can dive into the book to find out, you don't just treat it as an emotion. There's much more to it. The word has much more depth than just the word emotion for you. Yeah. So wonder is kind of a shapeshifter. It's both a noun and a verb. So the way that I describe wonder is it's an emotional experience. But of course, you can't put that in a subtitle. So really, it's an emotional experience, an emotional cycle. And we look at wonder as the verb, which would be to wonder, and that would be the element of curiosity. And then we would have wonder as a noun, and that might be the catalyst for awe. And so I wanted to put those two concepts together. And what I've created is a single overarching cycle that starts with openness to experience and then moves into curiosity, then into presence and absorption, and then finally into awe. And the reason that I call it a cycle is because the more often we experience each one of these elements, the more likely we are to experience them in the future. And so really, it's one of these additive, upwardly beneficial cycles. Yeah. And and I love that you, over the course of the book, have it broken out into three pieces, the big components of it that are the elements of wonder, wonder as a practice, and then living in wonder. I wonder if you could, I I wonder if you could, I'm going to keep doing that joke throughout this. So just ignore me if it's not (laughs) funny and forgive me for sure. I'm curious, what are the differences between those three components, those three parts? Sure. And so To start, I just wanted to explain what wonder was, or at least how I was going to describe it throughout the book and really what knowledge I had learned up to that point. Because obviously, everybody has a different sort of opinion or take on what wonder is. And so I needed to lay the groundwork to say, this is what we're going to be exploring. So 
in that first section, it's really looking at those components that I call watch, wander, whittle, wow, and woe. And those again are openness, curiosity, absorption, and awe. And then we get into the second part of the book. And that is this idea of how we're able to see wonder. What are our different wonder bringers? How do we bring that into our life? And what benefit do those give us? And then the last section of the book is really about creating a wonder mindset. It's about having wonder in our lives for in a longitudinal way. So one of the messages that I wanted to deliver was that wonder is more than a moment. It's a mindset. And so I didn't want people going out and seeking these moments of wonder. Rather, I want them to recognize that if they see the world through a wonder lens, through a wonder mindset, then you will always find wonder because there is always wonder to be found. I want to emphasize that when some people think of the word wonder and they hear you talking about it, they may go to this whole, I don't know, Dead Poets Society, Carpe Diem kind of a thing, which it is, but it's not just that. Or they may equate it with thrill seeking, but it's not just that. It's, you know, seeking out new experiences, et cetera. Or it may be about curiosity and learning, and it is, but it's not just that. And I love that it incorporates all those things that are kind of preconceived notions of, you know, when I first saw the title, I'm like, oh, I think that's what this is about. It's much more than that. I think because wonder is such a shape shifter, it's the opportunity to explore. And for everybody, it's going to be a little bit different. One of the things that I think we tend to think is that it is that big, you know, rare fleeting experience, jumping out of a plane or seeing your kid take their steps for the first time. But really, we can find wonder in the quotidian. And what I wanted people to understand was that we can find little micro moments of wonder. And when those are aggregated, they give us the same amount of benefit as if we have that big wow and woe moment. And one of the messages I really wanted to deliver was just how, because when I discovered it, I was really surprised and it was compelling to me and I thought others would find it as well, is just how transformative wonder can be and how it can improve our lives. And this is not in sort of a spiritual, squishy, you know, the the secret sort of way. No, this is this is measurable psychological and physiological benefits you know, a direct biological pathway between wonder and better physical and mental health. And to me, that is, you know, that's fascinating. Yeah, definitely. And I think what you're getting at here is that mindset, which I want to get to the living in wonder part of this, although we can work through the whole thing, really, it comes down to noticing and observing. and, And I love that you put it as looking at the world through the perspective or lens of wonder. Before we get there, I'm curious, let's break down a little bit of the part where you talk about the elements of wonder, where you talk about watching and wandering and whittling and and many more things. Unpack that a little bit. What are the elements of wonder? Yeah, so the first is openness, and it's openness to experience. I describe that as watch. And openness to experience is one of our big five personality traits. The big five personality profile is really probably the most well-founded in science way for us to analyze our personality. And openness to experience is actually the personality quality that is most associated with so many beneficial life outcomes, things like improved relationships, better performance in work and school, better health, mental health. And so openness to experience is a a really positive quality. But of course, being that it's our personality, it's pretty much set by the time we're about 25. 
And our personality is set half between what we experience up to that age and half of it is just genetics. And so by the time we're about 25, we have some degree of openness to experience how much we can't change a lot of it. But what we can do is find, you know, mitigators and supporters to help us maximize whatever kind of openness we do have. And one of the things that I want to make clear is that openness to experience is a, is a really sort of a varied personality trait. And in that sense, we're really seeking openness to ideas. And that is the key way that we can tap into wonder. Certainly it can be experience. It can be thrill seeking. It can be, you know, trying a different cuisine. But the thing that will really get us closest to wonder is openness to ideas. And this watch is the, is a trait. So it's not a state. It's not something we dial up with the context. The next is curiosity. And we're talking about really, you can see curiosity in a couple different ways. There are a few different definitions of curiosity, but most of them tend to have at least one up to five factors. And they tend to sort of fall into two buckets, surface curiosity and deep curiosity. Surface curiosity is like the Google search to settle a bet or maybe sniffing the mill to see if it's gone off. You know, these are like real quick. I need an answer and that's it. But deep curiosity is curiosity for exploration's sake. And that's the kind of curiosity that gets us closer to wonder. And then we move into curiosity into whittle, which is really pairing back our focus so that we can be completely present. And it's absorption. It could be absorption that we might find in a flow state, or it could be the kind of absorption that is just that we get from a presence practice. So, you know, any kind of thing that helps us slow down our intentional or focus our intentional control. And then we get into the last component, which is awe. And I break those down into two. I break them into wow and woe. And the reason is, is because awe really has sort of two states. The first is having an experience that feels so vast that it shocks us. And that vastness can be a physical vastness, like seeing the Grand Canyon. It could be an emotional vastness, like seeing your kid take their first steps. It can be a cognitive vastness, like trying to understand the notion of a folded universe. And then because that big thing is so incredible, it makes you feel small. And in that process, then we get into the woe, which is your mind feels like it's blown. And actually what's happening is your neural pathways are changing. Your brain is changed after that. And so if we can start to work through each one of these elements and be rewarded potentially with the wow and the woe at the end, we are actually changing our neural pathways. Great. That's a great breakdown, by the way. I love having kind of this context setting before moving into the other two parts of the book, wonder as a practice and then living in wonder. And I think some people are going to say, well, wait, what's the difference between wonder as a practice? You know, if I'm practicing it, then I'm living in wonder. Can you differentiate those? Sure. So really wonder as a practice is some of the ways that we can start to find wonder in our life. It's the different, some of the different wonder bringers that we might have. And it starts to describe what a wonder mindset can be. So describing what a person who is wonder prone might look like, the types of experiences they seek. And we start to go through things like time and learning, looking at how wonder at work impacts us, how it impacts our health. And so these are all just the different ways that we can live in wonder, that we can practice wonder in our lives through being more healthy by bringing it into our workplace, by using it as a mechanism to learn. 
And so the difference between that and living is in wonder is where we start to get into the elements that really we can do as individuals. These aren't the things that are happening outside of our sphere, that the changes we can make over time to become more attuned to a wonder mindset. And those elements are things like religious practice or slow thought. And slow thought is described as anything that helps our attentional control. And those are things like meditation or narrative journaling, even a gratitude practice, prayer. These are all slow thought activities. And I even mentioned psychedelics, which is not necessarily something that everyone will try, but is an incredible way to sort of transform your mind in a way that you are seeing everything through a wonder lens. And it's showing to be incredibly beneficial for people who have certain conditions, certain types of depression, existential depression, or perhaps addiction issues. And so the last section is about how we can not just practice it, you know, in our sphere, but how it can become something that we embody it. And that's definitely a living it out in terms of living it day to day, but then also living it to the point where others notice that you're living it. Correct. And where you actually start to change your self-concept such that you are becoming more wonder prone. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that it strikes me is it, it almost to me seems like wonder as a practice in that section kind of has to do with cultivating or better way to put it might be kickstarting or rediscovering, if you will, wonder in our lives. Because we, we have that term childlike wonder and then we lose it, so to speak, as an adult is what kind of that conveys. And I think this wonder as a practice is ways that, hey, if you don't have this in your life, these are ways you can, again, kickstart it to come back to life or jumpstart it maybe is a better way to put it, where you have somebody or something that comes along and connects the cables from one car to the other and you rediscover it. You have electricity again, so to speak. But then the living in wonder is that ongoing kind of flow of your life now. Absolutely. It's topping up the tank all the time. Yes. What's interesting is I think that what we can start to do is find those ways that we connect to wonder. And it's a very individual experience. And you mentioned, you know, the simplicity of seeing the world as a child. You know, babies are little wonder machines. Everything they're seeing is building their schema and creating what their brains are going to be. And I talk about, you know, that we learn in wonder and learning through wonder-based schooling is so effective. And yet over time, we believe that there's less to be curious about. We lose our sense of curiosity over time. We also build so many schema that we tend to see things and think, oh, I've seen it. At least our brain analyzes it that way and then files it away and doesn't actually look deeper to see the elements that maybe we'd missed before that could bring us a sense of wonder. And so as we get older, it does get harder and harder because our brain sort of just gets calcified and the roots between point A and point B in our thinking are pretty well established. And what we're trying to do is create a degree of neuroplasticity, a degree of malleability in our brain where we can get out of those ruts and see things through the eyes of a child, see things as if we're seeing them for the first time again so that we can recognize the wonder that's there that maybe we just stopped seeing. Yeah, and, and I forget, you probably know it off the top of your head, there's this certain age, and I can't think of what it is, where you've kind of, okay, your brain has now formed, so to speak. Yeah, it's about by the age of 25. By the time we're about 25 is when our brain is pretty well set. 
before that, it is still fairly malleable. And uh, I think if you tell any 18-year-old, well, you've still got seven more years, they would argue with you. But it's generally to about the age of 25. But there is some amount of neuroplasticity that is available beyond 25. Absolutely. That's just your personality. And it's the way that I like to describe it is that your personality. So the person who sort of founded the idea of neuroplasticity is a guy named Alvaro Pasqualioni. And what he said is that our brain is like a ski slope. So your personality makes up the topography of the ski slope, where the rocks are, where the trees are. You can't move those, but you can take a different route down the mountain. What happens, though, is after going down the mountain hundreds and hundreds of times, you are going to pretty much take the same route every time. You could take a different route, but it gets really hard, right? Those grooves are really deep. What we're trying to do is sort of smooth the piece. We want to create a degree of, of malleability, of neuroplasticity so that we can find different routes. But the topography of our brain is set. That's our personality. But what we want to do is learn how to take different paths around those rocks and those trees so that we're seeing something different, but still with the same brain. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic? For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays? What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36 percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to shopify magic your ai powered all-star sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond again go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I think that then the question rises to mind that, you know, in the wonder as a practice section, those of us who are older than the 25, we still have that neuroplasticity as you're talking about. We're, we're not set in stone, but we maybe have gotten set in our ways and we need to, again, jumpstart or kickstart or rejuvenate, rediscover, pick your word of choice here, wonder in our lives. How do we start to rediscover that? What are some of the best practices that we can start with? Maybe we're a little apprehensive here. So the first thing is just to try to experience newness. Our brain notices newness. And if we do the same thing over and over, our brain just stops seeing anything because it's all the same. And so taking new roots, as I said, you know, trying new cuisine can start to get you there. Even putting your watch on a different hand or brushing your teeth with a different arm. Those are all just ways to shake your noggin up. But really, the greatest way to to see newness is to expose yourself to new ideas, to new thinking. Another way is just to get outside. Nature is a natural wonder bringer. There's something called the green advantage that can help. It benefits our bodies and our brains. And just being in nature is really a mechanism. Almost all humans find a sense of wonder in nature. It's because we are, you know, our brains have not changed that much from when we were dwelling in the savannah, right? So being in nature is almost always a way to tap into wonder. And another way to do that is, again, through some of those slow thought activities. It's really hard. I know that it takes, I'm not very good at it. I'm not a good meditator. I try to have a a gratitude practice, but anything that slows your brain down. The challenge is, is when we're rushed, we lean on our pre-existing heuristics. So we're basically, you know, moving as quickly as we can from point A to point B in our brain. And what we want to do is slow down and allow our brains the freedom to see and experience things in a different way instead of just leaning on the the way that it believes it should be done. And so anything we can do to slow down that chattering mind and get some degree of attentional control is really helpful. Now, I know one of the things that helps me the most is to do either the surface level or the deep dive level of learning, which I know is one of the aspects here of wonder as a practice. What are some of the ways that we can jump in? And, you know, I mean, again, it could be taking a course, whatever that course is. It could be online. It could be in person, especially if it's like a cooking class. That's definitely new experience of sights and sounds and smells and tastes. But what are some examples there? Learning is a great way to do that. And even experiencing other people learning. So watching your children learn, watching other people in your environment. And I think this is, you know, also a great opportunity to talk about the idea that wonder shared is wonder multiplied. And so the more often that we can experience wonder bringers with other people or share them with other people is really positive. And you mentioned that you are sort of younger if you're under 25. You know, that's a prime age where you still are 
in an exploratory phase and making friends. It becomes much, much harder for us to make friends as we age because life gets in the way. We move away. We become, we don't have the intensity of experiences that we do when we're younger. And so anybody who is still in university or grad school or in those wonderful early twenties where you're seeing your friends, you know, three or four times a week, cherish that because that's where the real wonder can develop. Because as you're sharing that with your friends and reliving wonder moments, that can carry through your entire life. You can meet with that group in another 20 years and reflect on the wonder experiences you had. And it's like you're reliving them again. Yeah. And I think that's one of the keys here is I've got two kids. They're starting to get older. There's a little less like newness and discovery happening, although one's older by about six, seven years. So there's a bit of a difference between the two. But I'm noticing that, although I guess I should say that like the older one is still discovering new things and I'm kind of doing that right along with them or or revisiting or re-experiencing maybe is a good way to put it. So I, I definitely love that you emphasized that wonder shared is wonder multiplied and that that's a way for us as you know, air quotes, adults to uh, have that happen. But I think, again, the collective, it doesn't have to be just difference in generational. It can be, you know, person to person. It can be a group of friends who just go do something new together. It can be a garage band. It can be a youth group. It can be, you know, a ragtime group of people who decide they want to knit. I mean, it, it can be anything. If it's what brings you wonder and you share it with other people, it doesn't have to be something that's very formalized. It just is about exploration together. Well, and speaking of groups of people experiencing wonder together, there is a section or a chapter in the Wonder as Practice section of the book that's called Wonder at Work. And I think that's one of the places that people maybe don't think of as a place where wonder could happen. And yet it needs to so desperately. You know, it's fascinating when we think about this idea of small self that I described before, where the sense um, of awe that makes you feel like a smaller component of a bigger system has such benefits. It evokes humility, empathy, other what are known as pro-social emotions, so emotions that make us want to help other people. And the research is, is so clear that wonder can benefit organizational culture. So people who are higher in the wonder characteristics are more empathetic, they're more humble, they're more ethical, they're more altruistic, they're more trusted. I mean, these are all things you would want in a boss and a coworker. It also helps generate and innovate in a fundamentally different way. It allows you almost to see around corners, to connect dots in a way that you never had before. And it generates so many of these qualities that that drive better businesses. So empathy, we know empathetic companies earn more and perform better and better able to hold on to their people. We know that humility is one of the the most recognized desired elements of a of a boss. And there's research that shows that, you know, humble CEOs lead stronger management teams who are more effective at collaboration and information sharing and all of these sort of elements that lead to better leadership behaviors, but also better job performance and increased engagement. And these are all things that come from wonder experiences. I mean, there was a really fascinating piece of research about humility that when someone had experienced wonder and they felt more humble, not only did they as individuals feel more humble, but their friends saw them as more humble. 
So we're talking about like a total change in self-concept. So not only do you, you feel that way, people see you in that new light. And so to me, that's fascinating. That means you really are changing as a human. And that's very beneficial. And then one of the other elements that we haven't really talked about, there's this notion when we talk about curiosity and the way that we look at different situations, there is a, a type of, it's not really a personality trait, but it is a quality. One is called need for cognition and the other is called need for cognitive closure. Need for cognition is the desire to be nerdy and need for cognitive closure is the desire to find an answer as quickly as possible and close down the thinking. Now, these don't sit on the same spectrum, but it, what we tend to find is people who are high in need for cognitive closure or low in need for cognition and vice versa. And what that means is that, in essence, there are people who really, really like to find the single right answer. They like everyone to know their place. And once that's set, they don't want to talk about it. There's no nuance. Everything is black and white. It's polarized. And that's a challenge. You know, you don't want to work with people like that. But if you're on the opposite side, so if you're high in need for cognition and low in need for cognitive closure, what that means is you like to explore things. You're willing to hold two competing ideas in your mind at the same time. And that kind of, you know, competing thinking in your brain is very positive for innovation. And what we know is that wonder makes people more flexible and open to change. It makes them lower in need for cognitive closure and higher in need for cognition. So it, it's what's known as a paradox mindset that they embrace these, this tension of competing ideas. And there's all sorts of evidence that this divergent thinking really helps prime great ideas. And so there's just so many ways that wonder can benefit work. And that feels a little bit similar to uh, the first part of the next section, living in wonder, when you talk about resilience and the way that wonder plays into having resilience. Absolutely. And I love the story in that chapter about the woman who uses curiosity as a mechanism for escaping from being held as a prisoner of war. And I also think that I had the opportunity to interview Stephen Callahan, who was the gentleman who was a sailor and ended up being adrift for, I think it was 79 days. And the way that he describes that he was able to find the alacrity to survive because of his sense of wonder. It was what opened his mind to see more opportunities, not just to find the beauty in the world, but to see solutions that he wouldn't have. Had he been gripped with fear, instead, he allowed himself to experience the wonder of this place that he was in, and it propelled him. It gave him the ability to survive. Yeah, I can't imagine that. But again, that's part of the he probably couldn't either and started to and then and and adopted that, you know, living with it in the moment kind of a, approach and almost had the not the mindset, the lens. He had the lens thrust in front of him without a choice, in a sense. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of this does connect back to our sense of meaning of where we see ourselves in the world and seeing ourselves as smaller. That gives us a, a different sense of meaning. And this is where we really start to talk about the idea of self-transcendence. So there are elements of absorption that can be self-transcendent. Awe is a self-transcendent emotion. And some of the emotions that we experience on the output of wonder can be self-transcendent. And what that means is it's basically just you are rising above your ego needs. And when we're able to do that, that gives us a great deal of resilience. It really helps us tap into a whole nother 
well of strength in order to survive whatever it is, whether it's, you know, a POW camp, a, a life wrap or shipwreck or just a really crappy job. You know, these are these are the sorts of things that that help you metabolize these difficult times. And we also know that it might be the difference. Curiosity. So the second element of wonder might be the difference between experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder and experiencing post-traumatic growth. And we also do know that that wonder can be an ameliorative, can help people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And so PTSD and post-traumatic growth are really quite intimately linked with the elements of wonder. So resilience is yeah, very connected to to the emotional experience. You saying the word or the the acronym, I should say, of PTSD reminded me of PCD, positive constructive daydreaming. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So positive, you know, daydreaming tends to be seen as something that's negative, right? We see it as, you know, we're telling kids to stop staring out of the window and to focus more. But it can be a really positive quality for us as humans if we allow ourselves to daydream. So there are a couple of different types of daydreaming. There is two types. There's actually three that are defined by Jerome Singer. And two of them aren't so great. One of them is where we sort of catastrophize about the future, where we're thinking about something terrible that might happen. And another one is where maybe we're reflecting on the past and just ruminating over and over. But positive constructive daydreaming is where we create future scenarios in our mind in a positive, creative way. And that's really, really beneficial. And that sort of links the two, the first two phases of or the first two elements of wonder. It's where we move from openness into curiosity. It allows us to be open to thinking. And then as we daydream, perhaps then it, it spurs us into action to be actively curious. And we know that it's good for us. It changes our brain. It, it thickens an area of the cerebral cortex, what's known as the gray matter. And that is associated with, you know, cognitive decline and aging. And so it's really very, very helpful for us to practice daydreaming. And that can be a slow thought activity as well. Well, yeah. And the thing, the thing about slow thought and the thing about daydreaming is if we're constantly stimulated or seeking stimulation, you know, we're on social media, we're not observing what's around us. We're seeking stimulation from something that we pull out of our pocket over and over again. We're not letting ourselves be bored, which I think has a huge amount to do with one, allowing daydreaming, but two, allowing the noticing. Absolutely. And that's that's where for daydreaming, our daydreams are always very rich, right, with detail. And when we have those dreams and we come out of them, we've noticed so much and it it almost makes our waking life or our more present life very, you know, sparkly. We notice things that we wouldn't have otherwise. Yes, definitely. And we mentioned a moment ago, uh, slow thought. I wonder if we can unpack that, dig into that a little bit more here. Yeah, absolutely. Slow thought is really anything that helps slow our brain down. And so that can be a lot of different ways. But what we're seeking to do is to hone our attentional control. We all have sort of a, a chattering mind that's always going on in the back of our head. And what we want to do is try to quiet that because when that's going on, then we're not paying attention to what else is happening. We're just listening to the chatter. And so we can do that through meditation. I've been asked what kind of meditation will get us closest to wonder anyone that you practice. So really any style of meditation will teach you this attentional control. 
So anything that you practice with regularity will help get you closer to wonder. We can look at elements like psychedelics, of course, is another one, but other uh, ways that we can find attentional control is like a gratitude practice. That's even more helpful if we journal with that. So narrative journaling is another great way to slow down. We can even just prayer, you know, prayer is another mechanism. And oddly, something that a lot of people don't think of, which is nostalgia. Nostalgia is a mixed emotion. It's also one of the reasons why wonder is such a powerful emotion, because it is a mixed emotion. And nostalgia is a mixed emotion. And when we allow ourselves to reflect in both a positive and a negative way, that is very good, again, for resilience and also just for the quality of our thought. There was a piece of research that showed that if you reflected back on your deceased spouse and you remembered both the positive and negative aspects of your relationship, you were better able to manage your grief. And so this idea of mixed emotions, curiosity is another mixed emotion that's really helpful because it's, it keeps coming back to if we can hold two competing ideas in our brain at the same time, and that can be two competing emotions, then that sort of strengthens our mind. It, it enlarges it and it helps us become more wonder prone. One of the other things that I know that you talk about is not chasing happiness, but instead chasing wonder. And then by doing that, we find happiness through those experiences where we find that wonder. Absolutely. And I have to tell you, this is a, this has become quite controversial. I've had some people accusing me of, why do you hate happiness? I don't hate happiness, but this is the problem. We are so bad as humans at knowing what makes us happy, right? We've all known that experience of, of buying some big thing we've been saving for. And then a week later we go, Oh God, that didn't really do it for me or waiting for that big night out. And then the next day you go, that, that just, it's, it's gone. And the challenge is it's something called affective forecasting. We tend to think that this thing that we're going to have in the future is going to give us a greater sense of happiness. Whereas wonder, because happiness is by its nature, it's what's known by psychologists as being single valence. So it is always going to be a positive emotion. And then sadness is always going to be a negative emotion. By their nature, you can't experience them at the same time. But wonder is a mixed emotion. It has a little bit of this fear and trembling, but it also has this positive sense of, of joy and exploration. And we see that also, you know, in that's, in that subcomponents, curiosity is a mixed emotion. Awe is a mixed emotion. And so having experiencing mixed emotions are more accessible because obviously we can't possibly be happy when, you know, something terrible happens. I don't know how you can watch school shootings or the war in Ukraine and be happy, but you can be in wonder. And that's the difference. And that's where it can start to help us metabolize these experiences, feel a greater sense of resiliency, and potentially also be happy. So it becomes a twofer. I think that, uh, you know, having gone through the book now and kind of covered it here in this conversation, there's so much more than we can dig into in this time that we have together right now. But I want to start directing people towards where they can dig in a bit deeper. And seriously, you have so much research from all these different elements in the book. I'd love to direct people to where they can find out more and connect with you in the book. Absolutely. So the book is anywhere books are sold. You can find more from me at monica-parker.com. I also have a newsletter that you can sign up for and you can sign up there. And um, I'm on social, Monica C. Parker. So 
I look forward to connecting with any of the listeners and I hope that they find some wonder. Awesome. And I hope so. I hope that, you know, this sparked something. And uh, just to make sure, I will link up to everything you just mentioned in the show notes for this episode. And Monica, it's been great talking with you. I can't wait to see where you go next, (laughs) whether that's a career change (laughs) or another book or whatever, but still living out and living in wonder. Thanks so much for your time, Eric. You have a great day. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed talking about The Power of Wonder with Monica Parker. And I hope that you found a way to enter in and broaden your mind and your imagination when it comes to wonder. I think this is a really good book. I think this is something that really stretches you in terms of your imagination, your inspiration, your allowance of possibilities, not just, you know, broad term macro thinking, but micro practices in the everyday world. If you found this conversation helpful, I would love for you to do me a favor and share it with somebody that you know needs to hear it. Hit that share button wherever you're listening to this podcast or head on over to the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com and share it from there. Thanks again for sharing. Thank you also for listening and I will see you next episode.